The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. If you've been with us, I should say probably if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks that we've been doing Hebrews, I need to bring you up to speed just a tad. Because for those of us who have been here, you've been feeling the pain, I think. Because from the get-go, the author of Hebrews is really putting upon us the importance, the eternal importance, of finishing our race, of getting all the way to the end, of receiving and entering into our eternal rest. In chapter 1, he laid or gave us a beautiful, glorious picture of Jesus Christ. He's perfect God, the very image of the Father, equal to the Father in every way. He is perfect God. He is both perfect God and perfect man. And he follows up that beautiful doctrinal section talking about the angels worshiping Jesus and Jesus being the creator, the son being the creator of all things and and worthy of worship and the one who is perfect in his manhood and therefore can give a sacrifice of atonement for his people. He follows those things up with significant and even in some cases severe warnings of what will happen if you stop believing in Jesus Christ. And he gives several warnings even up to this point in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 that can tend to unsettle and, and, and perhaps, if not understood the right way, even destabilize us a little bit. These several weeks in the, in the book of Hebrews and hearing these warnings have probably been pretty challenging. I, I expect that they have. The call has been to not harden your heart to God or His Word. The call has been to maintain a soft heart, an obedient heart, a believing heart, before God and to help your fellow brothers and sisters do that same thing. Some of you felt probably like the warnings were never going to end. And uh, I don't make any apology for it, really, because I know that these hard words are actually good for us. They actually are given to us, the intention of the author, they are given to us in order to enable us to persevere to the end. Not to destabilize us, but actually to root us deeper into Christ, into His local body, which He has given for the sake of our perseverance in the faith. I expect that these hard words have made some of us, if not many of us, uncomfortable. That's okay. That's the pathway to our heavenly rest. But God's plan for getting us to our heavenly rest doesn't just involve hard challenging and intimidating words. They also involve God giving us sweet words of encouragement. We need both, just like our children need both in parenting to have a well-balanced and healthy approach to parenting. They both need challenging, firm words. They also need love and encouragement and sweet words. You blend those things together, you have a well-balanced approach to parenting. Well, God is the perfect parent, and He gives us both challenging, hard, even sometimes stern words, and at the same time, He gives us comforting, encouraging words, and that's exactly what we're going to receive today. In today's passage, the author of Hebrews is going to provide us with all the resources that we need in order to keep our hearts soft and to keep believing. Isn't that encouraging? God places upon us the responsibility to believe in Him, to repent from our sins, 
to keep believing, to keep pressing forward in the Christian faith, and then he gives us every resource we need to make that happen. He doesn't leave you with 95% of what you need. He doesn't leave you with 99% of what you need. He gives you everything you need in order to do exactly what he has told you to do in the previous passages, specifically relating to keeping our hearts soft and persevering in the faith. So let's set this up from last week. Let's hear that hard word from last week and then go directly into that encouraging word. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest, that eternal rest, that final rest, the rest of heaven, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, that disobedience that Israel, the wilderness generation, was guilty of. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of joint, of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That is a challenging word. Strive, make every effort, labor, agonize to enter that final rest. And make sure that your fellow brother and sister who are sitting next to you with whom you have fellowship, make sure that they do as well. Why? Because there's coming a day when God will expose us for who we truly are, and he will expose any religious facade that we have made if we have, in fact, built one. He'll expose it by his very word. These words may have shaken us to the core. They're intimidating words, but that's okay. Again, I I say it again. I don't apologize if I made you feel a little uneasy the last several weeks. This is the pathway to heaven. The pathway down the broad road that so many know, even those who are in churches, even those who are in professing Christian evangelical churches, the path, the broad path is characterized by soft, easy words. Now there are some delicate, soft, easy words in Scripture. There absolutely are. But if you don't balance those words out with the hard, challenging words, then you will deceive Many people. The pathway to heaven is paved with challenging words. They are what keep our hearts soft. But what that word in chapter 4, verse 11 must not do, which we might be tempted to do here, what it must not do is to push us back on our own willpower. I recognize that you hear a hard word like that, a challenging word, and you've got enough wherewithal in yourself to say, well, I don't want that to happen. And that's good. That should be the response. But then what happens is it pushes you back on your own resources. It pushes you back on your own willpower. And maybe you left last week going, that's it. That's it. Here's what I'm going to do, Derek. I've got a list of 10 things that I'm going to do to make sure I make it to the end. I'm going to focus on this, cultivating these godly relationships. I'm going to make sure that I'm practicing these spiritual disciplines. I'm going to make sure that I'm meeting with this person. I'm going to read my Bible 10 times this year. I'm I'm going to pray for three hours a day. And I would say, no, you're not, first of all, okay? First of all, no, you're not. But second of all, what may be happening there is that you've been pushed by this heavy admonition back on your own willpower. And you're now thinking it's all up to you. And what verses 16, verses 14 through 16 are going to teach us is that, no, what these admonitions, what these warnings must do is push you into the mercy of God in Christ. That's what they're supposed to do. 
I appreciate your desire to take God's word seriously. I know that some of you are making these plans, but mere willpower will only create short-lived bursts of activity, not enduring patterns of obedience. You know how I know that? The Bible teaches it, and I've learned it from experience. Okay? Willpower, sheer mere willpower, will only create short-lived bursts of activity, not deep patterns of persevering faith. These admonitions should provoke you to action, but most importantly, these warnings should push you and press you into the mercy of God in Christ, and that's exactly what the author of Hebrews is going to do now in verses 14 through 16. He's going to give us a sweet word about the high priestly role of Jesus and what that has done for us so that now we may actually go with full access to God as our Heavenly Father. Let's read the verses now together. They've already been read by uh, Pastor Tim. Let's read them again. Since then, okay, right? There, the warning was in verses 11 and following. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who was that? Well, it's Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author immediately links God's grace to the call to persevere. Isn't that good news? That is good news. He immediately links our responsibility to persevere in the faith to God's grace. Namely, God's grace in appointing for us a high priest who has gone into the heavens. Well, let's first look at this phrase here, holding fast to our confession. What does it mean to hold fast to our confession? Well, our confession is our confession of faith in Christ. And that contains a few things. There's there's content to that confession. Namely, we believe that Jesus is the one true Son of God, that He is exactly who the author of Hebrews says He is. He is both fully God and fully man. Our confession includes not only the the confession that uh, Jesus is fully God and fully man, but also that He has died for us, that He has borne God's wrath in our place, like the song told us, that the song reminded us of. He stood condemned in our place because we were condemned, but He took our condemnation. He took our punishment, but that he also was raised from the dead. He didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead on the third day. Our confession is that if we believe in him with repentant faith, God wipes away all of our sin because Christ has paid for it on the cross. And because of that, that now we stand in right standing with God forever embraced by his goodness ready someday to enter into his presence for all eternity to worship Christ, to worship God, to experience perfect, unending fellowship with him and all the saints for all eternity. And we could, There's more we could add to that confession. That, those are the basics. That's our confession. Jesus Christ, we hold on to him. We want him. We have him because of what he has done. But the exhortation to hold fast to this confession is wrapped. I like that word, wrapped. It is wrapped in grace. Brother or sister, hold hold fast to your confession. That takes work. You've got to hold hold on to Jesus. That takes effort. You have to do that. There's something to do. But that exhortation is wrapped in grace. Who's enabling you to do that? Well, as we'll see, God's going to enable us to do that. First, here's the grace. 
We have a high priest who has entered into God's very presence. We have a high priest who has entered into God's very presence. He's passed through the heavens. Now, this reference to high priest, a number of you know this because you're familiar with the Old Testament, but just some of us who may not be, you're a new believer, or maybe you're here today and you are not a believer, you're not familiar with the Old Testament at all. The high priest in Israel was the one who was selected among a specific tribe. There's only one, only one high priest. There are many priests, but one high priest. And this high priest was set aside to be the one who would bring the sacrifice of atonement once a year into not the holy place, but the holy of holies, the most holy place. In the tabernacle, this is the, the most holy place. In the temple, this is the most holy place. And it's separated from the, the, the outer area where you'd have the, the courtyard and then the, the holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies. And it's separated by a large curtain so that no one could enter it except the high priest. And that only once a year. And he had to go through this crazy ritual to get himself all uh, ready to do that. He had to be washed pure and put on uh, these certain kinds of clothes. And then he would take the blood and he'd bring it into the Holy of Holies and he would splatter the blood a certain way so that he wouldn't die. And that would atone for Israel's sin and they could fellowship with God for that year. He would make atonement for the entire nation. Well, Jesus didn't go into some physical room where God's presence symbolically dwelt. That's it, God's presence was dwelling, but in more of a symbolic way in the temple and the tabernacle. Jesus actually enters into God's very presence, into the throne room of heaven, and not with somebody else's blood, and not with animal blood, but with his own blood. He passed through the heavens, went into God's very presence, And unlike the high priest sacrifice in the Old Testament that had to be repeated every single year because it was a mere animal sacrifice, Jesus sacrificed himself covering his people's sin and it was permanent. And here's the great news about it being permanent. Jesus' sacrifice never needs to be repeated. It was permanent. It was sufficient. It is finished, as uh, Cliff pointed out this morning. It is finished. And therefore, guess what? Your access to the throne room is permanent. It can't be reversed or revoked. The screen has been torn. You can enter in freely, and that can't change. It's permanent. Your access to the Father in His throne is as permanent as Jesus' sacrifice. You can enter at any time. It doesn't change. But not only is His sacrifice sufficient to permanently cover our sin... This is the beauty of it here. Look at what he says here. He not only has covered our sin and made a permanent access, but he is able to sympathize with our temptations and our weaknesses. Why? <clears throat> because he himself bore the same kinds of temptations that we bear. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but in one and who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He is the perfect Savior. He is fully man, so he experienced the same temptations that we do during his life, but he's also perfect God, so he never succumbed to them. Both are good news. For that reason, he is able to uphold us in the midst of temptation. Now, the question that always arises is, <clears throat> what kind of temptations did Jesus experience? 
Because surely they weren't like mine, because he lived long ago and he was God. And so surely they're not like mine. But I want us to take a trip back over to Matthew chapter 11. We were here before. (coughs) But I want us to go back here because it's important to see exactly what Jesus did experience in terms of temptation. So we can really uh, appreciate this sentence in Hebrews that tells us that he experienced what we experienced. Because I do believe that some of us are tempted to think that he may, he may not have. He may not have really experienced what we experienced. So, back in the context of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the inauguration of his ministry. And in order to demonstrate conclusively that this is the Son of God, and in order for him to be seen as the perfect Son of God who does not yield to temptation like previous sons have, like Adam and Israel, this one is a different kind of son. This is the one unique son of God. He is going to be tempted in the wilderness. God is going to use this as a test to show conclusively he is truly the son of God. But I don't want you to turn there, but as we are thinking about this, if I were to quiz you today and I asked you, and I think most of you would get this, how many temptations were thrown at Jesus during this episode? And you would say there were three Three temptations. Okay. Now, that's not a throwaway number because, as it turns out in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve was cast back on her heels and tempted by Satan, who had embodied himself as a serpent, who is, when she was thrown back on her heels, she started to ponder disobeying God. And she began to ponder disobeying God in three categories. Remember what they were? The tree was good for food. The tree was a delight to the eyes. The tree tree was desired to make one wise. What we can't forget is that in each of these categories, those were all good God-given categories. Those were all God-given capacities. The desire for food and physical sustenance, I mean, God made us to desire food. I mean, it's how we receive our energy and our sustenance, right? That was a God-given desire. The ability to recognize beauty and to appreciate beauty and something desirable, that's a, that's a God-given capacity, and it's a good God-given capacity. And the desire for wisdom, that's a God-given capacity. In fact, all throughout Scripture, we are com- com- uh, commended for seeking and commanded to seek wisdom and to seek diligently after it. The problem in Eve's case was that the object of her desire was forbidden. So that once she took from the tree those good God-given capacities, the desire for rightful provision, the ability to appreciate beauty and goodness, and the desire for wisdom, those capacities, God-given capacities now would be totally perverted from this point onward for both Adam and Eve and for all of their progeny, for every human being after them. So now we seek to fulfill these God-given capacities in evil ways. That is now the way of mankind. And we seek to fulfill them in ways that are contrary to God's nature and God's word. But here's here's what's important to realize. These three categories are the only categories of temptation that anyone will ever face. You might be thinking, wait a second, Derek, you are reading way too far into this text in Genesis. Well, we've got Luke with the three temptations. We've got Matthew with the three temptations. We've got Genesis 3, but we also have another text. You don't need to turn here, but I'm going to just remind you of 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Listen to this. 
the command uh, from John is to not love the world. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all, mark that word, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That is 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Here again, we see a tri-fold description of temptation. And it's universalized. He says, all the things of the world. They're reducible to three categories. What are they? The desires, or in some translations, the lusts of the flesh. The reason why you might find a difference is because desires, we've seen our, we have certain desires that are God-given, but when they're fixed on a certain object, or when they're inordinate, they become lusts, they become sinful lusts. Well, you have the lust or the desires of the flesh, you have the lust or the desires of the eyes, and you have the pride of life. Let's set that alongside of uh, Eve's situation. The tree was good for food. You could say that's the desires of the flesh or the lust of the flesh now that it's been perverted. The tree was a delight to the eyes. You could say now, that's, now that that God-given capacity has been perverted, that's now the desires or the lusts of the eyes. The tree was desired to make one wise. In her case, it was to be desired to make her wise in, in the face of other people, to, to exalt herself even over God as the temptation uh, plays out in Genesis chapter 3. So what would you call that? Well, that's the pride of life. And John is saying that those temptations, they can, all temptations that you will ever experience, they consist of those three possibilities. You might be thinking, Derek, we were in Hebrews, then we were in Matthew, then we were in Genesis, and now we're in John. What does this have to do with what we're talking about? It has everything to do, because as we'll see in Jesus' temptation, it's no coincidence that it's three temptations. Because what we're going to see in Jesus' temptation is that he was tempted just like you are. Because he was tempted in every possible category that you could be tempted in. Let's look at it. First temptation. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This verse 1. In verse 2 of Matthew 4. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I would say that this is the first category, the desire for provision, that originally seeing the tree was good for food, now it's a, a thwarted desire, a perverted desire, temptation to the desires of the flesh. Our body needs food, right? You, you need food. We need other provisions. We need shelter. We need clothing. In, in some ways, I would say that even our uh, sexual desires is a kind of need that God has put into us, and it leads us to many of us, to to be married. In Jesus' case, the specific need in this area of provision, of this category of provision, was food. Jesus was hungry, but he was hungry because he was on a specific mission from his Father, and he had chosen to fast for 40 days in correspondence with that mission from his Father. So Satan comes alongside the Son of God, just like he did with Adam and Eve, and he tempts Jesus to get legitimate provision in an illegitimate way. Was it good and right to eat if you're hungry? Yes. God has made us with a desire to, to eat, and he has made it such that we are prompted by our own bodies to eat and to have get what we need for energy by feeling hungry. 
These are all good things. And you'll remember back in Genesis, the first part of the first command was to enjoy all these wonderful things to eat. Right? So certainly it was not wrong to desire to eat or to, at some point, find something to eat. The problem was is that Satan tempted the Son of God to gain his provision in an illegitimate way. That's what was wrong. Rather than trust his father to provide for him at the right way, in a, in a way that was fitting for his mission, Jesus tempted Jesus to, uh, Satan tempted Jesus to grasp at the provision and get it his own way and according to his own timing, rather than wait for his father and wait for his father's timing. Grasp at it. Get it now. Get it this way. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Use your divine power for yourself. Use it selfishly. Get Get what you need now. Use your creative power to get yourself some food. Well, how does Jesus respond? He responds with Scripture. This is instructive for us. If the Son of God responds with Scripture, we should as well. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Adam and Eve had failed to hold fast to God's word and grasp at unlawful provision, didn't they? That's exactly what happened in their case. Israel failed to hold fast to God's word, and they longed for illegitimate uh, and unlawful provision and complained when they didn't have it. But Jesus was so satisfied in his Father's word that he could resist temptation to make an illegitimate grasp at his provision and to succumb to the lusts of the flesh. What about the next temptation? Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. This is in the Bible, Jesus. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus, you're always quoting the Bible. I'll quote the Bible. Okay, you like it so much. Here you go. I gave you a verse. Jesus tempted, but what is he tempting Jesus to do here? I think he's, he's, he's tempting Jesus here to secure his people's loyalty with a sensational performance. Just think about where he takes him. This is in the center of, of everywhere, right? Where does he take him? He took him to the holy city and sent him on the pinnacle of the temple. Everybody knows where the temple is. Everybody can see the temple. There, everything is around the temple. This is the center of all life and commerce, right? The temple. It's all about the temple in Jerusalem. Right? So he takes him to the holy city, takes him to the temple in the center of everything and says, throw yourself down. And you know what's going to happen if you throw yourself down? You'll be swept up by the angels and set down. Just imagine if that were to happen today. Take you to the, whatever, I don't know, the, the Millennium Temple up in San Francisco and say, jump down. And you jump down and then you're, everybody's watching you and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And he landed on his feet. What in the world? And people are going to go start and look and, and want to talk to you and get your autographs and scientists are going to want to test you and things like this and fight what's going on. Here, I believe Jesus is being tempted to, to, to come off the path of the cross and to gain his people's belief and loyalty in an illegitimate way, namely by some sensational act where God is going to deliver him, not deliver him through a resurrection, but deliver him from flying through the air and land him on his feet. Get glory for yourself, I think, is the emphasis here. Get glory, a sensational performance. Going to death on the cross, that's not going to get you glory. You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be scorned. People will spit at you. and Going to the cross, you want glory? Get your glory this way. 
How does Jesus respond? Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I believe Satan was appealing for Jesus' human desire for vindication. And, and I believe this is, this is a human desire. I think it's a good desire. It's a God-given capacity. The problem is, and, and again, just to, to give us some biblical warrant for that claim, you'll notice that when Jesus appeals for us, appeals to uh, or instructs us to humble ourselves, what does he add alongside of that? Humble yourself now so that someday you will be what? Exalted. There is a, a longing in the human heart to be vindicated. And here Satan is appealing to that human desire to be vindicated. The problem is, is he's tempting Jesus to be vindicated not through a cross and not through a resurrection, but through a sensational performance. He's tempting Christians today to get our vindication through wealth, success, achievement, and personal glory now. Wait, you think I'm crazy for believing in Jesus? Let me, let me show you how crazy I am. I'm wealthy, I'm powerful, I'm wise. No, God says, no, the way to vindication, true, everlasting vindication, is not through the boastful pride of life. It is through a cross and resurrection. And that's the way it was for the... Son, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So I think here you have the appeal to the boastful pride of life. And then finally, the third temptation, which I think is the desires of the eyes. Verse 8, again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here Satan is tempting Jesus to grasp at his inheritance early. Grasp at his inheritance early, before the right time. So he shows them all the kingdoms of the world, kingdoms that Jesus was going to inherit. But there was a pathway to inheriting them. It was the cross and a resurrection. It was fulfilling the Father's mission. It was bearing the sins of his people. And he would receive those kingdoms. They are rightfully his. He saw that they were wealthy. He saw that they were powerful. They saw that they were glorious, beautiful kingdoms. And he had full rights to them. And he would receive them after he completed his father's mission. But Satan tempted Jesus to get that inheritance now. That lust of the eyes. I see things that are wonderful and I want it all now. Jesus responds, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus trusted his father to deliver his kingdom at the right time. Jesus was resolutely committed to fulfilling the mission that his father had given him and not grasp at fulfilling his needs for provision or vindication or his rightful inheritance in an unlawful way. In other words, Jesus was tempted just as we are because he faced the exact same categories of temptation that you have faced and will ever face. He saw the attractiveness of sin. He saw that it offered pleasure, at least temporally. You might be thinking, yeah, but Derek, Jesus never experienced the temptation to compromise my integrity at a large tech firm 
Or he never experienced a temptation to get really angry, sinfully angry with my children, right? Because he never had earthly children. He never worked at a tech company. But the good news, this is good news. This is gospel, right? The good news is that he doesn't have to experience those specific temptations to be our sympathetic high priest. Why? Because he faced every category of temptation that you will face. Let me make this concrete for us. When you are tempted to steal or cheat on your taxes, you are being tempted to resist God's way of providing for you or to get your provision in a forbidden way. When you are tempted to lust after someone who is not your spouse, whether you are married or unmarried, you are being tempted to fulfill sexual needs in a way that is contrary to the way that God has designed. In both cases, you are tempted to come off the path of self-denial and self-control and trust in God to provide you in His way and in His perfect timing through legitimate, honest work and receiving a paycheck for that or through marriage, whatever the need or provision might be. When you are tempted to boast in yourself and to exalt yourself, you are are being tempted to vindicate yourself in front of others instead of waiting for God to vindicate you at the final judgment. That's the vindication that matters. But when we are tempted to exalt and boast in ourselves and boast in what we've done and boast in our wealth and boast in all that we have and boast in who we are, we're trying to get vindication. We're trying to get vindication in front of people. And, and the vindication is to come at the final judgment. When you're tempted to pursue wealth and possessions as the primary aim of life, when we do that, we are being tempted to grasp at our eternal inheritance now instead of waiting for the new heavens and new earth. When we are tempted to compromise our integrity at work, we are being tempted to gain unlawful recognition from others or to grasp greater provision in a forbidden way or to lock in greater wealth in this life and not to wait for our eternal inheritance or a combination of all three. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be tempted in this life. The things of the world have not changed one iota from Jesus' time. Till now, He knows what it's like to be tempted to step off the narrow path of faith and obedience. He knows what it's like to be tempted to trade in the cross for an easier way. That's what Satan was doing. At, at, at basic, that's what Satan was doing in Jesus. Come off the path of the cross. Are you kidding me? Why would you put yourself through all this difficulty, Jesus? He's whispering the same thing to you. Why would you go through all this difficulty of obedience, Christian? There's another way. There's another way, a little compromise, but it's, there's another way. That's what he's tempting us with. He is a high priest who stands before your father who is just like you in your humanity, who knows firsthand how hard it is to navigate life faithfully. He has blazed a trail to heaven, and the path is now laid out for us. All that's left is to follow him in it. But there's another important truth that we must lay alongside of this truth about his sympathy for us and his manhood or else we will be badly imbalanced in our understanding of Jesus and we'll be badly imbalanced in our Christian life. Jesus suffered temptation in every way that we do and will, yet he never sinned. And that's also gospel. In fact, you don't have any gospel without that truth. You have a high priest who can be condemned for your sin and fulfill the Father's righteousness because Jesus himself never sinned. If he suffered all of our temptations yet yielded to him, we couldn't go to him for help. 
So not only do you have a Savior who can't save you from God's judicial judgment, but you don't have a Savior who could actually even help you, do you? If he would have sinned. Right? You don't want a Savior who suffered temptation every way we, we did, yet sinned. Why? Well, let me help you with a personal illustration. Uh, years ago, when I was in college, I was lacking assurance, and this is, goes back to even when I've talked to you guys about this in my stu- our study of Hebrews and how Hebrews is very personal to me, but I was lacking in assurance. And this was causing severe depression in my life. I mean, the kind of depression where I'd asked to be let go, to be, to be able to go home early from work. It was so bad, so I could lock myself in my room and examine myself. I don't know what I was doing, reading the Puritans, making things worse. I don't know what I was doing, but, but I was severely lacking in assurance and this was leading to real depression and and people around me they could this is they could just tell like what is wrong with Derek you could see it on his face and his his posture everything and so I eventually am led to go to a uh, a Christian counselor not a biblical counselor this this man was it was primarily trained in psychology okay and so I went to him and I just laid my heart bare because I needed some relief and I'm giving him all the the insides of my struggles with assurance, depression, doubts, all this stuff. I just laid it bare for I don't know how long. And I remember he's looking at me, and I think there was like the small trickle of a little fountain right here to make things really nice and pleasant. I think I remember that too, or maybe some incense. I don't know, something to make it nice and pleasant in there. But anyways, I poured that all out before him, and he listened, you know, with that very kind of pensive yet compassionate look on his face. And after a while, he said with a kind of forlorn, sad look on his face, he said, yeah, I'm struggling with the same things too. I don't know what my face looked like, but I'm sure it, it expressed my, my grief because that was absolutely the last thing that I wanted to hear from him. Yes, I wanted someone who could sympathize. I wanted someone who knew what it's like to struggle in the Christian life. I wanted someone who had come out on the other end. I wanted someone who had learned how to overcome. I didn't want mere sympathy. How pathetic is that? Well, I didn't, I didn't go to that guy for very long. Let's just say that. That didn't last for very long. I think I lasted for two sessions and I was out of there. So we want someone who can more than merely sympathize. We need a Savior who understands what it's like to be tempted to come off the narrow path. And Jesus was tempted like that. The beauty of the temptation narratives is that Jesus is fully human and he's being faced with the onslaught of temptation just like you are. What's it to come off the narrow path of obedience and to begin to compromise to make things easier, to begin to sin? But we need a Savior who has the power to uphold us in the times that we are buckling under the weight of sin. I need a Savior who was tempted in every way as I am, yet sinned not. That's the kind of Savior that I need. That's the kind of Savior that you need. I need a Savior that I know will help me overcome my temptations. And that's exactly who Jesus is. Now, you might still be thinking, you might have, I got another objection for you, Derek. Jesus didn't feel the same weight of temptation as I did because he's God, right? Just to to shatter your your, uh, Christology here for a second, uh, 
it was never possible for Jesus to sin. Okay? It was never, he's the Son of God. The Son of God is the subject of the incarnation. The Son of God ain't never going to sin. Ever. It was never possible for him to sin. But it's not also true that he never felt the same weight of temptation that we do. Let me explain to you what I mean. Think about it. When you are facing a temptation, just think about the last temptation you faced. There's anger, lust, financial compromise, whatever it was. You face the temptation and the pressure begins to grow. And if you're, it possibly you're able to withstand it and perhaps it will pass. And you overcame the temptation. You're like, phew, thanks, Lord. But there are times when the temptation is strong and it's powerful and the weight almost feels unbearable. And what do we do to release the pressure? We give in. We give in. Often, sadly, right? If we're being honest. Jesus never gave in. He never yielded. So the intensity of the temptation would only continue to grow until the temptation was fully resisted. You want to talk about intensity of temptation? Where do you go? You go to the Garden of Gethsemane. There, Jesus is at the pinnacle. He's coming to the pinnacle. He's not at the pinnacle yet. He's coming to the pinnacle of his mission. And the screams from the from Satan, I trust, and from his humanity are saying, come off the path of obedience. Are you crazy? Bearing the wrath of God for sinners? Why? Why would you do that? You crazy man. Bearing the eternal wrath of your father being separated from him in ways you've never experienced in your eternity? Come off the cross. You could only imagine the intensity of the temptations, and we know it was intense because the gospel writers tell us that he sweat drops of blood. So intense was the temptation that his very body was racked as he, as he resisted to not sin against his father. So you don't think he felt the same intensity? He actually felt a much greater intensity of temptation, yet he overcame. He overcame it for you. He overcame it for me. It's wrong to think that he didn't feel the same height of intensity. Actually, he felt a greater intensity, and he came through it so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for your sins and so that he could come alongside you and say, I don't only sympathize with you, but I will help you with what you need. You have every way of escape with this temptation. Whatever it is, whatever it is, I faced it. I faced it, and I've come through. I will help you. So then, what's the action item? What's the action item for us? Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, here's the action item, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. If there's one thing that we need after weeks and weeks of harrowing exhortations and warnings to not harden your heart, to make sure that you don't fall away and go to hell, if there's one thing that we need after all of that, it is a reminder, it is an exhortation, it is an encouragement to go to the throne of what? Grace. Grace. 
We need the mercy and grace of God. These warnings are designed, by their very design, they're designed to push you into the throne room, so to speak. You got these warnings, what are they doing? They're pushing you into the throne room. Get in there and start asking God for help, all right? Get in there. God's throne of grace is open wide. It's open permanently. It's open 24-7 so that you might get the resources that you need to keep going in the faith. Do not allow Satan. Here, here, here's, here's, we have to fight through this because Satan is so clever at this point. One of his strategies will be convince you, to convince you of the exact opposite when we are faced with a temptation. He will, he will do this all the time. You, if you've experienced it, I'm sure many of you have, if not all of you, he will do this. He will persi- per, uh, persuade you that you can't go to the throne of grace precisely because you are a sinner. You're too filthy. God doesn't want weak people crying to him all the time. Would you, come on. Say, he's just whispering to you. God doesn't want you just up there always crying to him. Like You need to be strong, man, woman, whoever. You need to handle this temptation on your own and show God how strong you are. You ever heard that temptation before from Satan? That is a highly sophisticated strategy and it often destabilizes unwary Christians, I think. Satan would love for you to conclude that you can't go to God for help because you're sinful. But the point of a merciful and faithful high priest is to create a way for sinners. So you can tell Satan, God has created a way for sinners. The throne of grace is for sinners. He's given permanent access to the very person who will enable me to persevere in my faith. Listen to Romans 5, 6. Our high priest has made a way for us into God's very presence, presence precisely because we are sinners and are desperate for help. Listen to Romans 5, 6. We need a reminder. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did Christ die for? The ungodly. The author of Hebrews encourages, like, encourages like this. Because you have a high priest who has entered into God's throne room for you, who sympathizes with your weakness, yet never sinned, draw near to the throne of grace with absolute confidence. With confidence, no hesitation, no harboring doubts about God may not listening to us. The picture of here, here is of a, a king's subject coming into the throne room and just waltzing in. Like he doesn't need to fill out a bunch of forms. He doesn't need to work through bureaucracy. He doesn't need to salute the guy at the door. He doesn't need to do any of that. He needs to go into the throne room. That's the picture here. Just go into the throne room with confidence. He just walks right in. Why? Because he's not merely a citizen. And he's not merely a servant even within the castle. He is the very son of this king. He is the adopted son of this king. We are called to walk with confidence into the king's throne room and make our requests for help. Father, there are a thousand enemies at my doorstep back in the village. They are threatening to destroy me. They are blackmailing me. They say if I just give in to what they want, they will leave me alone. I am too weak to withstand their threats. I'm scared I might give in. Father, help me. What does he do? He dispatches all the resources you need for that temptation so that you don't have to give in. That's the kind of confidence God desires for us to have in our times of need, to waltz into that throne room, to walk right in. 
But you might say, I'm too weak. But God doesn't ask you to be strong. He actually says the opposite. Come to him for help and for mercy. So don't, don't think that there's strength in it here. This, the, the point is that we are weak. I'm weak. The warnings remind me how weak I am. The gospel is for those who are weak. You say, I'm so ungodly. Yes, and the gospel is that Christ has died for the ungodly. So your sin is no barrier to the throne of grace. And you might say, you don't know my sins. They're as black as hell, Derek. Yes, but Christ's death is sufficient to cover the worst of sins. He died for the blackest of sins and he died for the worst of sinners. Why do you think that he saved Paul? So that you would have no doubt walking into the throne room. Why do you think he saved the worst king Israel had ever seen, Manasseh? So that you would have no doubt walking into the throne room. Your sin doesn't surprise God. Here's the beauty of, of the cross. It covers the, you think of the most horrendous sin you have ever committed in your life. Covered. Forgiven. You can go into the throne room. You might say, I can barely open my mouth to speak to God and to ask for help. Yes, but look at the loving, tender, and gracious God who sits on the throne, who gave his son for you out of love for you, not begrudgingly. If you can only mutter the simple words, help me, that's great. You can go to the throne of grace with confidence because Christ has died for the ungodly. The throne room is permanently open. Christ's death covers all sin. And we can expect... What can we expect when we go to the throne? We can expect our Heavenly Father to dispatch all the help that we need to overcome that temptation. That's why it's called the throne of grace. God has infinite resources at His disposal for you. In His Word, in His providence. Paul says there's no temptation that we experience that's not common to man. Everybody experiences the same temptations. They just come in different variations, but it's all the same. And God will give you a way of escape. He's ready, God is ready to pour out what you need in, in your time of greatest need. So, how do we sum this up here? These truths, what I've just mentioned here, are critical in light of what we've been studying in the last several weeks. The, the, the warnings are sharp. Amen? Amen. They are sharp. We can't allow our hearts to become hard. We can't allow our uh, Christian life to become lazy and lethargic. There are a myriad of temptations and distractions vying for our allegiance and our attention. Our enemy is sophisticated and crafty. Sin is deceitful. We are weak and easily led away by, like, like sheep. What can we possibly do in the face of such wise evil? Well, the answer is certainly not to build up a heap of willpower. The answer is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace in the help in time of need. We need to ask God. We need to go to Him and ask Him to help us persevere. We need to ask God to keep our hearts soft. Oh God, by Your Holy Spirit, will You continue to keep my heart soft? Don't let me be hard to people's admonitions or con when they confront me with my sin or when I'm confronted with sin here. Don't let me continue to pile over it, but to expose it and to repent of it. Ask God to help you do that. Ask God for wisdom to navigate life and navigate your trials. We need to ask God to give us the courage to do what is right, even when it's going to be costly. 
We need the, to ask God to continue to give us the faith we need to continue persevering. Remember Philippians 4. Paul tells us to make your request. What do you need? What do you need? Let God know. Go to the throne of grace and God will dispatch what you need. He welcomes you in. He has done all that he can do in order to give you the confidence that you can enter at any point in any moment into his throne room and ask for help. Well, what a fitting way to end a sermon on the throne of grace than actually going to the throne of grace together. So let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus Christ. Uh, What a beautiful picture we see of Christ in the New Testament. And as we learn about his temptations, we are moved to see not only that he experienced what we experienced, but he overcame so that he might be our Savior and the one who comes alongside us and says, I know what it's like. And I will help you. God, I pray that these words would be so deep into our hearts that we will go into your throne room and ask for help. Not listening to the temptations of Satan, tempting us to not believe that you will welcome us in, but going in with confidence and asking you for help. And then would you give us the help that we need in all of our temptations. Help us to walk that narrow path. Give us encouragement when we fall and encourage us to get back up and to continue to go into your throne room and to trust you and to ask for help. And I just pray that you would bless our study of this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.